God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey everyone, this is Jason. I wanted to take a quick minute before we get into this week's episode to tell you about Nomad 2020. Nomad 2020 is a virtual conference for all of us spiritual misfits who are ready to engage our doubts and questions about our faith and explore the heights and depths of God's love. There are some fantastic speakers lined up for the event, including Keith Giles, Derek Day, Kyle Butler, P.K. Langley, Dr. Katie Valentine, Carl and Laura Forehand, Cody and Elaine Johnston, Bill Thrasher, Todd Vick, and yes, I'll be offering a session or two myself. I'm so excited about Nomad 2020. It's June 5th through the 7th. You can either watch live or watch the sessions at your convenience for up to 30 days after the event. You need to register prior to the event. I would love for you to register today. We'll put a link in the show notes for this episode to help you find it. Please join us for Nomad 2020, June 5th through the 7th. I hope to see you there. My guest today is Phil Drysdale. Phil helps people who are in the process of losing their faith and hopefully helps them discover something much more beautiful to believe in. He founded the Deconstruction Network, a site dedicated to helping uh, those deconstructing their faith find like-minded people to connect with and conducting research on the deconstruction movement. When he's not traveling to meet with and support groups around the world, he's usually found on Instagram chatting with people. Phil is the host of The Phil Drysdale Show, which is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on YouTube. And I am so excited to welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast today, Phil Drysdale. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here, Jason. I am so excited to talk to you. As we were talking off air, I've known of you for a long time, followed your work. I feel like we've had very similar progressions theologically over the last decade, Mm. but I'm really excited to hear the whole of your story this morning, or at least as much as you can cover in one episode. Sure. So let's start at the beginning of your faith journey. Did you grow up in an atmosphere of faith? I did. So my dad was a pastor. So both my my mom and my dad were first-generation Christians, grew up in non-Christian homes. My dad was a wild alcoholic sailor for the Navy who part-timed as a DJ. You know, he was he was like trying to tick all the boxes. Um, he jokes like he had a woman in every port. He was crazy. He had like a stomach ulcer from his alcoholism. And he somehow got invited to his Pentecostal meeting and got radically healed in it and saved on the spot. He, he, you know, you, you don't get healed of a stomach ulcer in an instant and not kind of have that impact you. And so he then went off and became a, a minister, a, a Baptist pastor, which has different connotations in different parts of the world. Baptist is very black and white in America. Um, in America, you guys kind of work with your denominations and you stick with them. You know, a denomination means something. Other parts of the world, denominations are quite loose, fast and loose. I mean, he was a charismatic Baptist. So there you go. You know, right. Yeah. <laughs> you don't hear about those too often here. You don't. You don't. The Baptist hostels, we are rare. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's that was kind of why I grew up in this kind of um, weird kind of Christian world, which I mean, what what Christian world isn't weird, right? We're a bunch of weird people, but uh, very charismatic, constantly seeing amazing things happening through my my family's life. We didn't, we were extraordinarily poor and yet like profoundly provided for by God and things like that. So I was constantly seeing those things growing up, but mostly disconnected from it all, if I'm honest. I, I was basically counting the minutes till I turned 16. And my parents said, when you're 16, you can leave the church. But until then, you're doing what you're told. And so I was counting down to 16 to get out, you know, <laughs> which I think is pretty common. I think a lot of kids are kind of waiting for that moment where they're no longer, you know, 
pushed into church and they can make their own choices. Oh, absolutely. Our teenagers at our house have certainly been that way. <laughs> um, what was the character of the God that you grew up believing in? What was God like in your understanding at that point in your life? It, it's really interesting. I, I, I'm not very good at remembering my childhood, if I'm honest. And so, um, you know, I, I try and be as generous as possible to everyone involved because it's probably much, much uh, way more different than I, than I remember it. But I, I actually do think my parents did an incredible job of painting the God who they kind of were tied to as kind of like evangelical Baptist, uh, charismatic uh, Christians that, you know, there's a lot of different dynamics of who God is that you're kind of tied to within those boundaries. And yet, nonetheless, they did a really good job helping me understand that God was good, that God was for me, that God was loving. And yet you couldn't help fill in your own blanks. You know, the things like, yeah, but if people don't believe in him, they're going to burn forever in hell. And yeah, but, you know, he does say in the Bible, he commands these huge, you know, genocides and emphasides, and he condones, you know, rape and all sorts of horrific things. And so you start filling in these gaps as a kid, especially as you start going into your teenage years and you're starting to think for yourself and you're thinking like, I don't care what other people say, I know best. You start exploring these things and start realizing, man, there's some really messed up stuff in this, in the mix, you know? And I think that was kind of where I was at in those kind of teenage years. And funnily enough, I actually swung more fundamental. And so I actually ended up about 16, which is quite funny, bad timing for me as far as my plan to get out. Around 16, basically came across this youth group that was thriving, had loads of great people around my age and uh, loads of hot girls. And that was all that really mattered to me as a teenager. <laughs> and so, of course, here I am, you know, <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. There's really, really good looking girls that seem to get, pay some attention to me here. I'm, I'm in. And yet it was a very fundamental church. It was, um, it was basically a, a non-denominational church, but it come from a brethren movement. And for all intents and purposes, it was brethren. The brethren is like hard religious, very, very fundamental. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't eat like a cookie without saying grace. You know, um, they, the woman would have to wear dresses or skirts, no pants. They, the woman and the man would sit on different sides of the, the church uh, for certain services. You know, like it was very, very fundamental. But what I liked about it is they had answers. You know, they, they really did. You know, if you, you ask these questions like, yeah, but what about this genocide stuff? They would go boom, 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 and just dish out these answers. And I, I don't know how much I went into a bit of cognitive dissonance and accepting those, but I did, I liked that, you know, there was some certainty and security in that. And so I think that kind of frames kind of where I was at growing up, coming up through my late teens and even into my early twenties is probably when I started to really start um, pushing against that dynamic and starting to ask questions and realizing that, the hard black and whites weren't really working for me. What were the first questions that you really seriously engaged as far as coming to a place of owning a faith of your own, coming to a, a place where you took on those questions so that you could really decide what it is you believe on your own, apart from your parents, apart from the fundamentalist church with the hot girls? What age were you when you started asking those questions? You said early 20s, is that right? Yeah, but I, I think even before that, I was, I was, I don't want to paint myself as anything other than uh, genuine um, in the sense that I, I really do think in, in my late teens, I was really seeking those answers. And, and to some degree, I really found a bit of peace in those answers. Just the, the fact that there was authority figures that gave a fairly compelling answer. You know, I could look at, trying to think who I, I looked up to in those times, John Piper, uh, Mark Driscoll at the time was really big and really cool. Don't know if you remember him. Oh, absolutely. 
you know, and, and, and these people, they had this certainty, this, this, these black and white answers, but they, they, they were rational people. You know, these people aren't insane. They're not, you know, devoid of logic, despite me maybe holding different rationales now. And so if, I think it was only around probably early 20s, 22, maybe 20, 21, 22, 23, that I started, I think the thing that started to unravel it for me was, was this concept that people were, were inherently sinful and evil. And it, there was a lot of different beliefs, but I think that really, really didn't gel with me. I, I knew too many people that weren't Christian and they just were great people, you know, and I, and I knew myself, I knew I wasn't inherently sinful. Uh, I, I knew that there was something in me that wanted to be good, that, that desired to be good. And, and that whole thing of beating myself up because I'm a sinner, you know, it, it was this terrible cyclical trap I was stuck in. And so I just, I, I really, I started banging down that door, seeking an out. And, and that's where I kind of, I ended up going into like um, a more kind of, I went back into kind of more ex, uh, extreme charismatic kind of backgrounds. I ended up going to a ministry school, a uh, school for the supernatural, uh, but they were founded on it, God is good, but but you are also inherently good. Like it, he's done something in you to make you inherently good. And, and I think that helped me a lot start to reframe. How can I see God as good? I, I would go along with that movement to a degree. I didn't find their answers very compelling, but I found the permission to ask the question very compelling. And so in that, I started asking loads of questions. I'd be, I, I've always been someone that explores everything. And so I remember my first month in ministry school, they gave me a book by the, 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 the leader of the movement. And I was like, well, I'm going to be here for three years. I don't need a book by the leader of the movement. I'm going to hear him every week. And so I, I bought a book by uh, John Piper um, and I bought a book by Brian McLaren and read all three that first week. Um, but that gives you an idea of like, my mentality is I want to explore everyone's thoughts, emotions, uh, engagements, ideas, concepts. Like, let me have a look at everything and let me kind of piece together something that makes sense. And so, yeah, that was a really big thing for me to, to explore everywhere. And I think that's, that's allowed me to create something that has been fairly unique for me. Obviously, I've met thousands of people by now that have kind of gone on similar paths or explored similar concepts, but it felt very unique to me at the time where I was in these worlds, you know? When you were gravitating towards the Pipers and Driscolls of the world, was that like a search for certainty? Where you, you talked about them having concrete answers. W was that what you gravitated towards? Was feeling a sense of settled certainty about your faith? I think what we tend to do is we develop um, psychologically, we, we kind of tend to um, go through these different stages. And, and I think at certain stages in our teenage years, we tend to, we, we've grown up in a world of uncertainty. Then we're, then we find things to be a bit more calming and certain when our parents just answer the questions we have and we kind of accept them at face value. But when you go into your early teens, you start to realize some of the face value answers that your parents give you aren't actually true. And, you know, you maybe at school they go, oh yeah, the sky's blue because of this, not because of whatever reason your, your mom barked out when you were seven, you know? And, and so I think you start to realize, oh gosh, a lot of the things I've been told aren't true, but you still want that certainty. Um, and so I think what it was, was I, they were easy people for me to turn to that really did put across a compelling certainty. And I think that felt safe to me in those, in those years, you know, today certainty bores me. Um, it, it's such a, an uninteresting kind of thing to seek out. I, I, I rarely find myself reading or, or exploring or asking people things to find a certain answer, but that certainly was where I was at at a certain stage. And I think that's not just an age thing. I think it's, it's reflected most obviously in ages because they're kind of these classic stages that every human develops through to some degree. 
But I think they're also, they're, they're relevant in uh, microcosms of society as well. You know, you can look at certain movements in Christianity are much more rooted in, we need this certainty, we need this black and white clarity. Um, and other movements within Christianity are quite open and, and, and very um, uh, happy to have a, a little bit less of a black and white understanding of certain things within the breadth of spirituality. And so I think that's what I was needing at the time. And, and it's certainly something that I'm not needing now anymore. And maybe I'll come to a place where I need it again. I don't know. How hard was it for you to distance yourself from that during that season when you kind of decided that the doctrine of original sin wasn't making sense to you anymore? Was that a difficult transition or did you make that fairly naturally? I think I made it fairly naturally. I'm I'm a weird person, Jason. Like I, I say that not exaggerating. I know a lot of people are quick to say they're weird, but I am really weird. Um, I I seek out um, any kind of contrary position and explore it by default. You know, I, I'll be hanging out with my friends, and we'll all be very similar politically, for example. And I'll immediately seek out a contrary political position to create a conversation, and and I'll fight for devil's advocate. Uh, the devil's advocate's position. I, I'm always looking for stretching myself and pushing myself. I think that's something my mum taught me from an early age to to question things, to especially question authority figures, uh, which I think she regretted after a while. <laughs> um, but you know, to not take things at face value, to to be open to exploring new ideas. And I think a lot of us aren't taught that that discipline. And I think that can be a very big blessing. Um, but it also can be definitely a curse. And but because of it, I. I I was very used to being often finding myself a little bit on the outside, often finding myself with people disagreeing with me, getting a bit blue and uh, red in the face, you know, yelling at me or whatever. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't too jarring for me. And I've always been able to, on some level, carry some level of uh, relationship with people that I disagreed with. I think on the whole, I can do that fairly well. I don't know, maybe behind closed doors, they close the door and they start screaming and yelling at me metaphorically. <laughs> but uh, um, certainly I can generally speaking, sit down with someone that has a very different position and, and have a rational, reasonable conversation with them. And, and we usually go away smiling. Yeah. So it, it, it wasn't too challenging for me, but I do know that for the most part, people that go through these kind of processes and, and radically shift and change in the way that they see faith, it can be a very, very painful process. Very painful. Uh, it's something that I wasn't quite aware of until I started doing what I do and helping people go through that process. You know, for me, it was exciting to change my mind. It was, it was fun to look up new ideas and realize you were wrong about something and explore a new idea. And the, the downsides of maybe uh, certain friendships falling apart, maybe some community being lessened, um, those things were very secondary to me. I don't know if it's because I'm such an introvert or um, I'm, I'm quite good at making some new friends if I need to anyway. But it was only when I started speaking to people and you start realizing, wow, out of the thousands of people I spoke to, maybe dozens are like me. The vast majority do not go through that process in a very uh, excited and uh, uh, encouraged manner. It usually it's a very scary, it's very painful is it's a very lonely process for for most people. So I'm very aware that I'm quite lucky in that regard. Oh, definitely. You sound like you uh, were very blessed just with a natural sense of curiosity that led you through it with a sense of excitement. I think for me, once I realized that all the things that I was so certain of weren't actually true, it was just like certainty itself couldn't exist. It was like the house had burned down around me. You know, you hear some folks talk about deconstruction as if they chose to embark on this process. And for me, it was just waking up one day and the house was gone. 
And I'm sure it was a gradual process to get there, but it was uh, very traumatic on the way. I do want to hear about your call to ministry. Did you always have a sense that you would spend your life helping people navigate their faith journey? God, no, not at all. Like, I mean, like I said, I grew up in the church. I grew up in poverty because of my parents' decision to do that. Um, I, I had no desire whatsoever to do a ministry at all. Um, I, from 16, I started in, in IT, in the oil industry. I started my own business with some friends. We grew to a very successful place. Like I enjoyed, uh, the workplace and I still long for the workplace sometimes, if I'm honest, but it was in the, it was in the throes of me kind of swinging from that fundamental position to, to, uh, wanting to re-explore a lot of the charismatic elements and things like that, that I decided to kind of give everything away, walk away from all and, and move to California to do ministry school. It was in the midst of doing that, that I realized, gosh, there's something so much deeper to life. And, and that's what I want to help people with, whatever that looks like. Um, and initially, you know, that was a very black and white time in my life. Still, I still had all the answers. I knew where people were wrong and what they needed to believe to be right. And so I would travel, I would go around the world and I'd be doing different like church meetings, conferences. I'd speak in some schools and things like that. And that was kind of like a, I, I really enjoyed it. I loved meeting people. I loved helping people and people that are looking for that certainty wonderful. It's, it's, you know, uh, as much as certainty to me is something that's probably a little less black and white and a little less something you can nail your, your, um, everything to for a lot of people, they're just looking for something certain and they believe some really toxic things. So I'd rather give them something that's a little bit more health healthy to be, you know, convinced of and hold as if though it's absolute truth. At least that's a move in, in a, in a positive direction. But as I was traveling, what I realized was it's fascinating. The, the dynamic of being at someone that ministers itinerantly is that people have nothing to lose in their conversations with you because you're going to be gone tomorrow and they'll not see you again. Maybe they'll see you next year if the church has you back or if you do another conference or something. But on the whole, they can tell you anything and there's no real ramifications, right? And what I found was fascinating is at the end of these meetings or when I go out for dinners with people or lunches, the amount of people that had questions, the amount of people that had doubts, the amount of people that weren't certain in their faith at all, and, and the amount of people that their faith wasn't working for them was staggering, absolutely staggering. And I started to realize that there was no one there for these people. They, they, they weren't in safe communities where they could actually explore those doubts and ask those questions because the communities they were in were based on certainty and questions and doubts were almost seen as a sin. You know, this idea that we would doubt our faith is 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 inherently sinful to a lot of Christians. And, and I started to realize, gosh, this is a huge group of people within the, the Christian body that have no one to pass to them, no one to be there for them, no one to hold their hand and say, I'm just here for you as you go. And, and I think that's what led me into what I'm doing now. It was kind of a bit of a segue from running around the world, telling people what's right and what's wrong to suddenly realizing I have no idea what's right and wrong most of the time anyway. I think the more you speak, the more you teach, the more you more people expect you to have answers, the more you realize your answers are a bit weak anyway. I don't know if you found that in life. <laughs> it, it, it reveals that you maybe don't have the answers as well. And so I think realizing that there's a whole community of people in this world that, that are needing someone to be there for them and walk with them and encourage them. And, you know, for the, you know, maybe that's 20, 25% of Christians, maybe, I don't know, the data is out, out there somewhere, but I don't think anyone's kind of nailed it down yet. Certainly 25% of the people that pastor, that encourage, that are there to lead and, and support, there's not 25% of the people in those roles out there helping those people. Almost 99% of them are in a church helping people that are quite content in their faith. 
And so I think there's a great need for people, people like yourself, people like me, to create platforms for people to come together and connect and to ask these questions, to explore their faith, to be a bit more intentional in a safe place. Talk to us about the Grace Course. What is it? How did you create that? Uh, it's it's an interesting dynamic. I, to be honest with you, I kind of hate the name. Um, <laughs> well, I'm stuck with it now. It, it started when I was in my more certain seasons. So it was probably about seven years ago or something I started it. And, and I was looking to create just a, a big repository of, of teaching on a whole bunch of different topics. Um, you'll find that earlier teaching on there is much more black and white. It is, well, this is what the Bible says. This is how to interpret it right. Some of it I still agree with and believe, but I'd probably hold it a little less firmly. I'd, I'd have a bit more of an open hand to it. Over time, what it's become is a bit more of an exploration of different beliefs. And so if you look at some of the later uh, topics, I've got a topic on homosexuality, for example, where we, I basically look through data, science, worldly perspectives of, of homosexuality. And then we look at, okay, well, let's look at all of the historical context in Mesopotamia so that we can look at the Old Testament accurately. Let's look at the Greco-Roman context so we can look at the, the New Testament accurately. And then let's look at all the different Bible verses on this. But let's look at it from the three perspectives of homosexuality. Who, who cares what Phil thinks? Let's look at what all Christians can basically be summed up into three categories. And so, you know, in brief, basically, you've got three categories. You've got the, the more rigid side of things would say that homosexuality and homoeroticism are both sinful. So homoeroticism is acting on, se- on same-sex actions, basically. Homoerot- uh, homosexuality is just having same-sex attraction. So the most extreme group in Christianity would say both are wrong. The, the kind of middle ground group would say, well, homoeroticism, acting on same-sex uh, attraction, is, is wrong. But having same-sex attraction, well, that's not inherently sinful if you manage it well. And then you've got the, the final position, which would say, no, neither are wrong. Um, of course, there are certain homoerotic acts that could be sinful, but in the confines of like a healthy relationship, that's fine. Um, and so I looked at like every single Bible verse from each of those three perspectives. I looked at how they would deal with the historical context from their perspectives. And so I think for me, that's something I'm much more passionate about. Uh, looking at things and giving people what the story is. How do you look at this across the board? And, and as, as much as possible, trying to have a less biased, opinionated, here's my certain answer for you. Uh, approach. And so the Grace Course has kind of evolved over time. It's, it's, uh, it's completely free. It's just a repository of information. I, 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 again, I don't like the name course because people immediately think of something that costs them money. Uh, initially, I have thought about having something like that, but, but I don't do, I've never charged for anything and I never will charge for anything. So it's just kind of free repository of information at this point. But it's, it's harder to put together the kind of content I'm putting together now to put together content that is open, that, that discusses things that across a broad spectrum and, and fairly puts up across multiple points, it takes a lot more work and research and study than putting across your opinion and what you think and what you've come to the conclusion of. Have your views on scripture evolved over time? I know a lot of the struggle of deconstruction is, is grappling with inerrancy for many people. Is that been a struggle for you as well? It wasn't really. I don't know if this is partly because I'm European. I think it's it's less of an issue over here. Um, I think uh, on the whole, I want to be sensitive to, to the topic. I'm, I'm not trying to bash America or anything like that, but I do think the American church tends towards slightly more fundamental positions when it comes to the scripture. Uh, whereas I think in Europe, we're a bit more open-handed, you know, something like evolution, nine out of 10 Christians in, in Europe are going to believe evolution. Like, of course, it's kind of there. We've got some data on it. Fine. Why would we be 
against it. Well, there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't have evolution. Whereas I would wager over in America, you could probably flip that statistic, maybe not quite nine, but a very high percentage of Christians would go, of course you can't have evolution. The Bible clearly says it isn't possible. And so I think naturally by being European, I have a very different approach to scripture off the get-go. I, I look at scripture and go, well, what kind of literature is this? Uh, I'm not reading the whole book as though God got up one night and grabbed his pen and just started writing from beginning to end. You know, this is a collection of very different types of literature. You know, Genesis is very poetic, you know, uh, the Psalms are songs, you know, uh, the, the Proverbs is wisdom prose, uh, Corinthians is a letter. Uh, I think Kings is, you know, like a chronological piece of information storing some history of the Israel church, Israel uh, nation. You know, these are very different types of writings. You would be very remiss to read Genesis the same way that you read First Timothy. You know, one's a letter and one's a, a poetic description of how who God is and how he created the world and why he created the world and who we are. And yet what we tend to do, a lot of more fundamental mental Christians is we open up Genesis and we go, oh, look, a science book or a biology book. Um, that's, that's not what it is, is it? Um, and so by reading these books with 21st century questions, we often um, do them great disservice. And I think that's something I never overtly had the inclination to do. I was always kind of taught to open the Bible and, and appreciate it for what it is. You know, this is something that really annoys me is people that use the phrase, you know, take, you've got to take scripture seriously. But people that say take scripture seriously very rarely take scripture seriously. I've, I've, I don't know anyone that's used that phrase to me that can speak Greek or Hebrew. Or, uh, or read it at least, um, or has done intense study on uh, ancient Mesopotamian culture so they can understand the culture that the Bible is in. These kind of things are taking the Bible seriously. Um, I'm not saying, by the way, that people have to do that. That's uh, kind of very impractical for a lot of people. I'm just saying that the people that take the Bible most seriously are, are in, investing thousands of hours a, a year into these kind of uh, periphery concepts so they can get the most out of the scripture. And so, yeah, I think my, my perspective towards it was always a little bit different than um, perhaps a lot of more fundamental, more conventional Christian in the West or in, in America, at least, would be. It certainly over time evolved to some degree, though. I, I think I've learned to read the scripture through different lenses. So we all read the scripture through one lens or another, which often, you know, the, the technical term is called hermeneutic. It's the lens that we put on when we read the scripture. For me, I was always taught to kind of like open up the Bible and it's all God's word for us to teach us. You know, you read something on that page and it's it's true. It's true for you today as it was for them. And you need to apply it into your life. Um, and I've, I've since learned that really our hermeneutic, Jesus didn't read the Bible with that hermeneutic. Jesus kind of was quite fast and loose with the Bible. He would cut out little bits. He would change bits. He would say, well, you've heard it said this, but I'm going to say this. And he had a very different approach to scripture. And so I've tried to apply um, in my own reading the hermeneutic that I see Jesus and I see the apostles writing the, the New Testament, I, the hermeneutic I see them using, which to me is a hermeneutic of looking at God as revealed in Jesus. And so when I open my Bible and it's, uh, you know, God is uh, commanding everyone kill all the men, all the women, all the children, all the sheep and dogs, but you can keep the young virgin girls for yourselves, divvy them up among the soldiers. That's a really messed up passage, right? Can you imagine Jesus saying that to his disciples <laughs> on any level? <laughs> I mean, it, 
it's 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 ludicrous and yet on some level we're left if we're going to read the bible completely flat with a, a basic hermeneutic of if it says on the page apply it today which i really strongly advise people against if you plan to perform any genocides or anything um but you know if we're going to read it that way we, we really are going to end up with some real issues res you know um resolving that how does god in the old testament look like jesus in the new you know uh there's a popular heresy or wasn't back was back then it's not anymore but called marsonianism and this guy mars marson he, he said look i actually this is so different that if jesus is the perfect image of god then whichever god israel were worshiping can't be jesus's father now i don't believe that but i think he was highlighting hey there's a problem here we're going to have to revisit the Old Testament somehow. His answer was, was, in my opinion, not the right answer, which was just to say that that was a different God. Um, I think that we actually have a much more complex thing going on in the scripture, which is that there is one God, but he is being described in two different ways. And one is a description by those who know him, who know his nature, or who hear his voice and can share it uh, accurately. The other is by people that don't know God very well. They, they don't understand his heart and his nature. And, and so you see throughout scripture, there's constantly two gods, uh, or this one God being represented in two different ways throughout the Old Testament. You've got a God who loves vengeance and punishing his enemies and pouring out wrath for sin. And then you've got a God who's going, no, 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 I'm nothing like that. I want to extend mercy. I want to extend forgiveness. I want to restore people if they've sinned. That's a very schizophrenic God in a sense. And I don't think that it's God that's schizophrenic. I think this is two different types of people trying to describe what God is like. You can look at this today and just say an Arminian and a Calvinist walk into a room and have a debate. Well, they're describing the same God. We all think that, but they're describing him very differently. And I think this is what scripture often is, is, is until you get to Jesus, we've got a discussion going on. Jesus is the conclusion of that discussion. Jesus is the person that we need to look through to discern the discussion and go, who was right here? Who had the right opinion? And so I, I think there's, I mean, worlds and worlds that could be said on that. I've got a whole series just on that topic called, Is God Really Good? But I think, yeah, my, my, my view on scripture has certainly evolved. No question. With the understanding that all theology is a work in progress and where you are today may not be where you are next year. Well, I hope not. What do you think God is like? In this moment right now, how would you describe God? Yeah, I, I think something that fascinates me is, is our capacity to define God. If you think about what is God, even that word God is, what is it? It's three letters from the English characters and we've pasted them together and that's trying to sum up this thing that is has created every single language there ever was, has created all things that have ever been, has created our capacity to even acknowledge what exists or what doesn't exist. You know, this this being that is God, we're so quick to go, oh, it's a man with a beard. You know, it's got to be a man. Or, oh, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's up in heaven. And it's like, well, this God is beyond everything. Colossians, I think, is, it talks about this God who is above everything, but within everything. He, he holds everything together, sustains everything. And, and so I think God is infinitely bigger than we can ever imagine. And I think all of our descriptions usually hold some level of truth. Now, we can warp that and twist that based on our own hurt and pain, but they are merely a metaphor for God. Anything that you've ever heard, said, read, even seen of God is, is 
just a glimpse. It's just a, it's, it's a, it's a, a vain attempt at describing God. It's like giving 10 five-year-olds a bunch of uh, crayons and saying, could you draw tonight's sunset? No one would expect to, to look at those pictures and see something as beautiful as the sunset. And yet we'd all probably look at those pictures and know what we were looking at. Oh, you, you saw a sunset and you tried to capture it. And in some senses, it's quite beautiful how they've tried to capture it. And there might be even something quite unique that you see of the sunset anew based on how they captured it. But it's not the sunset. And I think this is where we struggle as humans is we we get so attached to the way we've drawn the sunset and we get so aggressive towards the ways that other people draw the sunset that we fail to see that we are just capturing a tiny fragment of what God is. And even our words, our descriptions are so limited. Do I think that there are better ways than others? Absolutely. I think that if I'm going to have to nail myself to anything, I'm going to go with God is love. I'm going to go with God looks like Jesus. I'm going to go with any way that God doesn't look like Jesus is probably on some level. uh, And I'm talking about his nature. I'm not talking about him being, you know, six foot five and blonde hair and chiseled abs. But any way that God doesn't look like Jesus is probably in some way, shape, or form a reflection of our pain, hurt, twisted notions much more than it is some way of God that we don't know uh, usually. What role does Jesus play in your faith today other than informing your view of God? What do you understand to have taken place at the cross? Mm, It's a huge question, that. The cross is a fascinating, fascinating um, centerpiece in history, really, isn't it? I mean, we literally use it to, you know, define so much of of, of who we are as Christians, and and rightly so. And, and I think it is the epicenter of what Jesus came to do. Uh, and yet, we are very black and white with what we think the cross means. Um, and so, if you talk to many Protestants, at least today, they'll tell you that the cross means, and then I'll give you a description of penal substitution, this idea that God couldn't look upon sin. He was angry with sin. He needed to punish sin, but Jesus came instead and God punished Jesus. And now because of that, he's got his you know wrath out on Jesus so he can forgive us and we can have life. And that's certainly one view of the cross. But what's interesting is it's quite a modern view of the cross. It's not uh, an old view by any stretch of the imagination. And when you work your way back through history, you can find this lots and lots of different views of what the cross meant and how the cross affects us. Um, And to be honest with you, I think we are doing ourselves a disservice by trying to sum up the cross in just one black and white theology. I think it's a very broad, very complex, very beautiful myriad of of things that it reveals to us. You know, it talks of God's love, his his self-given sacrifice, his desire to see us well, whole. It, It talks of our inner desire as as humans and, and our systems to to be wrathful towards those that challenge our notions of God. You know, we, Jesus comes along and goes, hey, your idea of God's wrong. God actually looks like me and he's really loving and really kind and he's really forgiving. And what do we do? We go, kill him! <laughs> you know, um, that, that, there's something in that that reveals something in our society, in our, in our way we or, organize and structure and do our systems and, and how we scapegoat those that challenge us and, and are, are on the fringe. And so I think there's so many different aspects of the cross. You know, at the very earliest church, um, they, they held something called moral theory, which was literally, they just felt the cross showed you how you should live your life. Now, I think the cross is much deeper and more beautiful and more rich than that. 
But I think actually a lot of times we we miss that because we're so obsessed with maybe something like penal substitution that we actually forget to see that Jesus is also a, a beautiful moral representation of how to live life, how to lay down your life for others, how to carry your cross in day-to-day society, how to stand up against systems of oppression for those that are being oppressed. Um, those kind of themes fall to the side when we make it solely spiritual, quote unquote, because everything is spiritual. We, we fail to see some of the practical realities of the cross and vice versa. I would say the early church missed maybe some of the mystical spiritual elements of the cross. So I think there's a lot going on at the cross. I would be very hesitant to kind of sum up in two minutes um, what the cross means because it is so broad. It is so um, rich and incredible. I, I really like some of the more modern scholars are looking at the cross from a perspective called scapegoat theory or mimetic theory. There's some really great work on that. I'd encourage people to check out um, Michael Harden's work on that or maybe... Um, Mark Heim has an amazing book called Saved from Sacrifice, highlighting that the cross may not have been a sacrifice that saved us, but actually a mechanism through which we were saved from our need for sacrifice, which is a fascinating way to uh, explore the cross as well. But it's certainly a, a very rich place of theological exploration, for sure. Has your relationship to the church changed as you've moved away from a place of certainty? Yeah, I mean... To be honest with you, it's been very, um, very hard to engage with a lot of churches. A lot of churches do not like questions. They do not like uncertainty. They, they, they really find a lot of identity in certainty, don't they? And that's, that's great. Like I said earlier, you know, if you're in a place for needing certainty and you need some sort of stability and, and, and assurance that things are a bit more clear and black and white and that's where you're at in your life, that's a really good thing. And, and so I have nothing against churches themselves. I think a lot of them are doing a wonderful uh, job giving people that certainty. And then looking beyond that certainty, gosh, uh, churches, you know, uh, are the number one uh, system that help with the homeless. They're the number one system that put on food banks in our countries. You know, I mean, they're doing amazing work as well. So for me, I'm, I've I've not got this negative view towards the church as though they are doing a bad or evil work or they're somehow anti-Christ or against, you know, what I what I believe. But I do think, generally speaking, it's just the nature of the structure that they find themselves in. Across the board, broadly speaking, of course, there's lots of churches that operate very differently. I work with church leaders day in, day out, and helping them change how church can look to incorporate people that are going on some of these journeys. But on the broad scale, we find that the, the systems that they have to support the people they have do not facilitate people like myself being an active part of the community very well uh, a lot of time. I've navigated that uh, better at some times and worse at other times. I, I was certainly part of church for probably about 10 years, you know, having very different views to the church. And so I, I've done it and I can do it. And I was in church leadership doing that. And because uh, for me, I don't see it about, it's not about me. Um, you know, it's about the broader scope of what God's doing in this world. But Presently, I'm not part of a, a local community institutional church. We meet together as communities, aside from a pandemic, of course. Um, but we meet together in the pub. We get together frequently. We we do book clubs together. We you know we get together all the time. And so to me, that is church. But the the institutional component just wouldn't allow for what we do, which is explore and question and and doubt together. Um, as much as we explore new ideas that we believe, we we question things that we already believe as well. And and I think that's just a natural part of, of what so many churches are. They, they, they're not in a place to support that. And it would cause too much pain for those seeking certainty 
to have people coming along seeking an uncertainty, asking lots of questions and, and creating lots of doubt. Uh, those two people probably wouldn't be very healthy for each other a lot of the time. There seems to be a bit of a deconstruction moment happening around the world right now. You have created a worldwide deconstruction network and researched this phenomenon extensively. What drew you to study deconstruction? I think it's a fascinating moment we're in. If, if you look at kind of the, the last major shift in the church, I mean, huge shift was the Reformation. And, and you look at what made it possible, and it was the printing press. Without the printing press, Luther would have been, been gone. You know, the Catholic Church would have kept going and not much would have changed, I don't think. It was the fact that his ideas could spread so radically and that more and more people could join what he was doing and then print their own materials and spread leaflets and pamphlets and stuff with new ideas and speak out against different injustices that were um, going on in the Catholic Church at the time. I think today we're in a new Reformation moment. I really do. I think we have the, the birth of the internet has changed everything. You can be a, a, you know, I I talk to youth pastors a lot because kids are the most on it when it comes to the internet, right? I mean, they are on it. Um, And so you can be a youth pastor and you can say, well, the Bible clearly says sex before marriage is wrong. Now, before you finish that sentence, half the kids in your, your audience have typed into their phone, does the Bible say that? And immediately in the first 10 results on Google, half of them say, no, you know, maybe half do, maybe half say, yes, it clearly says this, you know, but a good half of them will say, no, it doesn't say that. It's, you know, maybe it's a discussion to be had, but it certainly doesn't say it explicitly. And so immediately within three seconds, your audience have called bullshit on what you just said. Now you go back a hundred years, that wasn't possible at all. And so we're in this new era where people can have a question in the back of their minds, but it doesn't need to stay in the back of their minds. You know, if you had a question a hundred years ago, you wouldn't even know where to ask it. You couldn't go to your pastor or a leader of persons that were studied to know the answers. You wouldn't have been able to go to even a local library, really, and overly look at, like, you know, how, where do I even begin exploring this? Now you just type it into Google and boom, you, you've got, you're introduced. You can look on Facebook and be introduced to a group of 5,000 people that all don't believe the same thing about hell that your church believes. Um, and you go, huh, that makes sense. And there's 5,000 people. That, that's a reasonable amount of people to be questioning this. And so I think we're in the middle of a, a time where people are not, people have always been asking questions, but I think people are asking more questions because there are more answers out there and they are more inquisitive and they're taught to ask questions. People are educated today to ask more questions. And so I think on the whole, we're going to see this grow and grow and grow. And, and what's interesting about the deconstruction or the de-church, there's a whole bunch of different labels used here, spiritual refugees, the nuns, the duns, and each one has a slightly different meaning which kind of overlap on all of them. I don't really care for the term deconstruction. It's whatever. It doesn't really bother me, but it helps a lot of people and falls into a lot of people's brackets of what they're going through. What's interesting with people that deconstruct is there's a lot of assumptions made about them. So people assume, oh, these people are just walking away from God. Well, if you look at the data, 2,700 people leave the American church every day. Every day, 2,700 people leave. What's interesting about that is 78% of them still claim to have a faith in God and to be following Jesus. And none of them have anywhere to go because they're not welcome. They're not, the reason they're leaving churches is not because they feel like leaving their church. They're leaving their church as refugees. They're leaving their church because they have no nowhere to, to, to fit in in this community. Um, there was a study done in 2015 by um, Packers and Hope. They... Uh, interviewed over a thousand people throughout uh, America and asked, why Why have you left the church? There were people that had left the church. They couldn't find a single person that had just got you know, hurt or offended and got up and left. 
The majority of them had spent an average of, I think it was 16 years since they had felt that there was a problem with the church before they left. You know, that's a lot of investment to try and make this work before they leave. And the the number one reason, it wasn't because they got lukewarm. It wasn't because they didn't care anymore. It wasn't because they wanted a license to sin. It was because they didn't feel a part of the community anymore. They didn't feel they could be themselves in this community. And so this is a huge need. There's people all over the world that don't feel part of the community. They, they're forced out of the community a lot of the time because their presence is threatening to, uh, to certainty and safety for, for the group that's there. Um, and then they're left on their own. They've lost family. They've lost friends. They're left un- uncertain about what they believe about God and their faith. They, they, they've lost a lot of their own personal identity, which is a really scary thing. And they don't have anywhere to go. You know, if you leave the Baptist church because you believe in um, charismatic signs, well, you can go to the charismatic church and you know you'll find some more people that are like you. But where do you go to find people that don't want to go somewhere? Or that's not quite right because they do want to go somewhere, but there's, there's nowhere for them to meet. Um, and so that was my heart behind the deconstruction network is uh, we want we want to study this group more because I, I think a lot of the rhetoric is very inaccurate. A lot of people say that, oh, this group don't care or they're just uneducated. They don't really know properly the answers. So they ask these questions, but they're just not right. What's interesting is this group um, that leave the church are in the most educated uh, bracket. But not only that, they're in the most involved bracket, they're most likely to be leaders. They're most likely to have been very heavily involved in their local churches before they leave. And so a lot of these um, things that we say about this group are not at all accurate. These people are very passionate. It's actually their spiritual growth that has led them out of the church, not a spiritual falling away. And and so the heart is to create some data on this, try and change some of the narratives about it, but also helping people connect with other people. And so when when people join the deconstruction network, they stick in their their city and their state and country. Um, and you can look on the map and see if there's other people in that area. And we've had people in Chile, you know, Los Angeles, London, Paris, you know, Africa. There's people all over the world that are finding that there's actually people fairly close to them that, that are going through this process. And they're not exactly the same. None of us are, but that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for a safe place to explore and to ask questions. And, and that's a really beautiful thing to be able to see people coming together like that and maybe start rebuilding some communities in their local areas. Some pastors have famously said that engaging in this spiritual evolution where you kind of engage the questions and the doubts of faith is a guarantee uh, path from conservative to progressive. And once you become a progressive Christian, you're going to become agnostic or maybe even atheist. Is that a pattern that you've observed or is that kind of a misnomer? They're not. No, I, I think they're not wrong uh, in, in many cases. I think you'll, you'll be able to find people that follow that path. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's dangerous to broad stroke these things. Um, and so this is something that we're hopefully going to keep doing. We, we, we do um, new fresh studies uh, every two months, just short five, 10 minute studies. Um, and so over time, over multiple years, we're going to be able to get a bit more data on this kind of stuff. But generally speaking, um, a lot of people go through a season of agnosticism or atheism. Some people move into more uh, progressive positions, absolutely. But that's very rarely the end point. Very, very rare, actually, that people settle in atheism. So whilst at times, if if I can put it this way, imagine you believe in uh, a God who loves to kill people. He wants his followers to rape other people, to murder, to steal, to cheat. Would it be safe to say that to get closer to God or Jesus, you're going to have to stop believing in the God that you believe, right? 
that, that's a that's a that's a reasonable thing to to pr- presume. You know, if you believe in this terrible, awful God, you're going to have to have a period where you put him down and stop believing in that God in order to start exploring new ideas that might lead you to Jesus. And and so I think for some people, the the background that they've had, the Christianity they've had, the ideas about God they've had, now. Maybe my example is too extreme, but actually for some people it's not. You know, you come from somewhere like um, the Westboro Baptist Church, and that's a pretty accurate description of some of the, the, the things that they, they they can say about God. This is truly horrific stuff. And so, you know, they will say, no, God wanted that person to be raped. No, God wanted the two towers to go down by terrorist hands. No, God wanted this. God caused that to happen. And so very toxic belief about God, to me, I would say that God, there has to be a season of atheism of, of not believing in that God before you can start believing in who God truly is. Um, and so um, that's an extreme example. And of course, a lot of people, it's just putting down some aspects of the God that they believe in and they don't change who they believe in so drastically. But certainly a lot of people need to go through that process. And, and generally, it will more likely look like agnosticism than atheism, generally, where, where people go, no, I still believe that there's some sort of God, but and I still pretty confident it's somehow tethered to Jesus, but I my experience of Christianity has been so bad that I have to put it down for now so I can try and pick it back up again from a different angle. And so I, I think they, they, they're, they're observing things that are occurring. The danger is that they're seeing one-off experiences. They also are going to see things from their perspective. So even that process, well, if you're the person that's, if you're the person that believes in a God that people have to put down, you're going to see it as bad anyway you cut it, right? The God that they pick up on the other side, even if it is a God that looks just like Jesus and is absolutely loving and amazing, you're going to look at it negatively if they have a different view of penal substitution or a different view of hell or a different view of the end times. or And so they're going to have a, a colored perspective of what's going on. Something I really try and do when I'm talking with people day in, day out is not to overtly guide what their path looks like. I think it's really dangerous to presume we know what they need to do to get to the right place because generally speaking, we don't know the right place for ourselves, <laughs> never mind someone else. And so I think it's, it's quite dangerous for these leaders to be so outspoken to say, oh, this, and write these people off because they, generally speaking, have no relationship with these people at all, in my experience. Having said that, do you have any advice for those of us who are going through this spiritual evolution? Are there any tips or facts that you've learned through your research that would be helpful to someone currently in process? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, so much great stuff that you can do. I think a a large part of it is recognizing that this is a journey. It's safe. It's okay. You're not alone. What you're doing is very normal. I think one of the dangers when you're when you feel like you're the only person going on this is you can start hearing the voices in your head that you've heard for decades of well asking questions is the beginning of backsliding or oh well if you don't believe in that you're just a heretic or well God will start removing himself further and further away from you if you don't you know believe this or don't do that and and so we've got all these programmed uh, thoughts in our head a lot of guilt a lot of shame a lot of really negative convictions within us that we, we will believe is God beating us up potentially. And so we have to recognize that religious trauma is a thing. There's a very real thing called religious trauma syndrome. It's a, it's a subset of 
post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, it's, a, it's a form of PTSD. And, and it really is where you have the, the fear of death, a, a threat of injury. That's one of the core components to these kind of uh, PTSDs. Well, how much more is that the case when you've been fearful of hell, fearful of eternal destruction? Um, that sounds like a real threat of injury or <laughs> fear of death. Um, and so people have got that in the back of their mind. They've got these kind of these traumatic things built into us. So uh, the first thing I would say is, is, recognize that that's normal. That's not God beating you up. It's not that you're evil. It's not that you're wrong. What you're exploring is a healthy exploration. God is not scared of truth. You know, if you ask questions, do you really believe that God is scared of you finding the truth? And so I think being okay with exploration, God is not worried about what that looks like for you. He's got all the patience in the world. There, there is no timeline uh, for you to figure out where you need to be and where you are right now is probably where you need to be. I, I think I really encourage people to study human psychological development because the, when we understand how humans develop and how we evolve individually, we'll, we'll see our faith progression quite clearly in that. It, this is a very normal and very, very healthy thing. Um, it's scary, but it's very healthy. It's actually a sign of a maturing and um, and becoming more and more evolved as a human. Uh, I've got a series on the Grace Course called Spiral Dynamics, which is one model of human psychological development. But as you go through it, you can see, oh gosh, when I was in the church, I was more at this stage and now I'm at that stage, but also realizing, oh, and there's future stages and this is kind of what they might look like. Now, it doesn't tell you what your faith will look like black and white in the future, but it does give you a point on the map. It, it, it's, it stops you feeling like you're just drifting in the sea, um, but recognize that you're actually, you're, you're, you're on a trajectory, you're moving forward, which, which can be very um, scary if you don't feel like you actually are making progress, you're moving in a healthy direction. But yeah, it's, it's a really scary journey. And, and it's going to look different for everyone. I, I really recommend therapy for a lot of people. If, if you can find um, a, a licensed professional therapist, I, I usually go out of my way to find one that isn't Christian, not because I don't want a Christian therapist, but because I don't want anyone that's going to be pulling me through my, my processing this out to have any Christian agenda, which, which if you're a proper licensed therapist, you shouldn't have, but you'd be amazed at how many people I've talked to that have been really hijacked by their therapists because they have a Christian agenda to try and get them back on track or, you know, to bring them back into the fold. Um, and so I, I recommend generally speaking, trying to find someone that, that doesn't have that background. If you can, someone with a, a religious trauma syndrome, uh, speciality, which is quite rare, is huge, really helpful. If, if you feel like you've maybe got some stuff on that, um, a good person to Google is Marlene Winnell. She wrote a book called Leaving the Fold, which is all about um, religious trauma syndrome. And, and I'd encourage people, if you are feeling you're waking up at night in fear, you're having nightmares, you're you're feeling really anxious and, and, and worried about this journey, I would encourage you to get that book, Leaving the Fold. It's got some practical exercises you can go through. It's, it's got a bunch of stuff. And please message me. You know, Jason will testify to, I spend all day chatting with people. This is what I do. And so message me on Instagram if, if you can, um, just Phil Drysdale. I'd love to chat with you. I'd love to encourage you and support you in any way I can as well. But yeah, it's 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 a journey. It really is. And it's going to be scary. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be fun. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be everything and everything. It really will. Phil, I'm so grateful for you, for your work, 
for the amount of time that you put into investing in people's lives, even through Instagram. How can our listeners engage with you outside of Instagram uh, find your work online? Sure. I mean, we've mentioned a few things. So obviously the deconstruction network, if people are going through something like that, is a really great place to uh, try and find other people and, and, and to engage with the research I'm doing. The Grace Course is a wonderful place to, to get more teaching and more resources. My podcast, The Phil Drysdale Show, is a great way to kind of get to know me a bit better because I'm rambling on there all day, every day. And they're usually two, three hour episodes. So they're not short. I like to go really deep with my guests to like to a kind of scary level usually. They're very daunted usually. And and yeah, Instagram is probably the best place to chat with me. I'm on Facebook. I'm, I'm less available there. I usually only go on a couple of times a day at most. Email is fine. You can find me through my website on email, but I'm pretty terrible with email. I really am. But yeah, uh, I'm, I'm as available as I can be. Uh, uh, but Instagram is definitely the place I live on. Um, it's, it's just the most practical to kind of bring it down to one place. And that seems to be the place that people are coming to me. And so I'm trying to focus on that. Friends, we're going to have links to Phil's Instagram, his website, The Grace Course, The Deconstruction Network in the show notes and also to his podcast. I want to especially encourage you to check out his recent episode with our friend Keith Giles. It's incredible. Yes, it is a long form episode, but you're going to enjoy every second of it. And Phil, I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.